Let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning I want to read the last paragraph of 1 Peter 4 and then just zero in on one simple phrase in verse 19, the last statement. Each time we've studied this letter, I have tried to point out some of the basic facts that like Peter was Jesus' lead disciple. Peter had lived with Jesus for three years and he had personally eyewitnessed the crucifixion and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Peter wrote this letter about 30 years after witnessing those central events of the gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection, the ascension. It's about 30 years later, 60 AD, early 60s. And Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering. He's writing apparently from Rome to Christians who've been scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And it may be, I think it's likely, that these believers were scattered through the emperor's decision to move the dregs of his society out into areas that he wanted to expand into to repopulate those areas and try to provide some some stable civilization in those areas, and so he would be cruel to certain demographics in the population, and these people had been scattered as a result of the emperor's unjust decision. So he's writing to suffering believers, and I think it's a critical fact to share that Peter would die as a follower of Jesus. He would die for his convictions about Jesus just a few years after writing this letter. He would write one more letter, Uh, near his death. He actually says in his second letter that it's likely that his death is soon. And, uh, And so after writing this first letter, it's just a few years till he himself dies. So it's not surprising that the whole letter focuses on suffering, and it focuses specifically on how to endure suffering. The paragraph we read today is like the beginning of the grand finale. It's the beginning of the conclusion He's, he's wrapping up, he's, he's summarizing his concerns. I read verse 12, beginning in verse 12, down through verse 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ today, if you suffer in that way, you're blessed because the spirit of glory, the spirit of God rests upon you. When he says the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, Peter's actually alluding to Isaiah 11 that says that the Holy Spirit rested on God's chosen servant, Jesus. And uh, Peter is really making it, uh, he's emphasizing, he's making it very clear that the same spirit that rested on Jesus throughout his sufferings and then raised him from the dead and took him into heaven, that same spirit is, is, is present in your life, resting on you, active in your life. When you, for example, show that you care about God more than anything else, when you fear the Lord, that same spirit is is at work in you. 
He says, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name or glorify God because you bear the name Christian. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And here he quotes Proverbs 11. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I want to take just a minute here to explain that reasoning. First thing to point out is the word scarcely, I think is probably better or more clearly translated um, with difficulty or through trouble. If it's through trouble that the righteous is saved, through hardships with much difficulty attending this. If, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Or what will the hardships be like for those who face God's wrath? If we're facing judgment in the form of fatherly purifying discipline, what is it going to be like for those who face sufferings when it's just the all-out wrath of God? That's his, uh, his, his way of thinking. He says, therefore, he's urging us to commit ourselves to suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter's main point in this paragraph is that believers should expect suffering and even rejoice in it, even rejoice while enduring it. He says, we should rejoice in it because we're following Jesus in his sufferings. We should rejoice in it because the the sufferings are God's intended way of testing and refining us, like fire tests gold. And he also says that we should rejoice in suffering because we know that our suffering is going to end when Jesus' glory is revealed, like we sang just a few minutes ago. But today, I just really want to focus on one phrase in verse 19. Those who are suffering entrust their souls to a faithful creator. This is Peter's counsel for what you should do day by day as you endure trials. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator. I'd say that the main point of verse 19 is, in your suffering, you must keep actively entrusting your life to your faithful creator. In your suffering, you must actively keep entrusting your life to your faithful creator. And in our just few minutes that we have here at the end of the service, I want to explore a little bit of what that phrase means. As I pointed out in the introduction, Peter is writing to suffering Christians. They're suffering unjustly at the hands of government, They're suffering tensions in their homes, as he indicates in chapter 3, because of their fundamental differences, because I submit to Jesus and my spouse doesn't, or they're suffering insults by those who live around them in their community. And, And Peter uses these concepts of insults throughout the letter to describe a, a common experience of believers that other people look down on us and other people talk bad about us, sometimes to our face, slander, sometimes behind our backs, gossip, 
we get insulted. Now, I think you could expand this. Um, it's not Peter's main focus, but I think you could expand it to say that really any suffering that comes to us in being faithful to Jesus, we can put under this, this umbrella of verse 19 that we are suffering according to the will of God. So if you've got like car problems in the path of faithfulness, church tensions, personal sickness, loss, things like this, you can say, I am suffering in the will of God. It's part of his plan for me right now. Of course, Peter clarifies, I'm not talking about suffering for the wrong that you committed. And uh, we always, I think it's wise always for us in our times of suffering to do some self-evaluation and even ask others for input. Do you see any areas in, in my life where you think God might be putting his finger on? I think self-evaluation is wise, not, not morbid introspection, but just frank self-evaluation. Is God trying to, trying to grow me in certain areas that I'm aware of? I think that's wise. But I think all kinds of suffering can fall under this, even though Peter is specifically focused on relational opposition. According to the Apostle Peter, look again at verse 19, those who suffer according to the will of God should, and I have it up here in three different translations that, that fill out what the, what the statement is saying. The ESV translates it, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. The King James powerfully captured it. Commit the keeping of their souls unto a faithful creator. Or the New Living Translation just beautifully paraphrases it. Trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. The God who created you captures the idea of creator, and he will never fail you captures the idea of faithful. Notice when Peter says, entrust your lives to your faithful creator, he does not say, do everything you can. Keep yourself up at night worrying, how can I get out of this trial? He doesn't say focus on how you can get relief from it immediately. That's what we as Americans often do. Comfort. How fast can I get it? He doesn't say do everything you can to get out of your suffering. He certainly doesn't say your pain gives you a right to be miserable. He's actually going to say the opposite. You need to rejoice. And his counsel is not merely endure it. He says instead actively, continually entrust yourself to God as you suffer. The verb translated entrust, it means to decisively give something over to someone else. You commit to them. Sometimes Hannah and I will go on a date and we entrust our children to a babysitter. Wow. Or we entrust our money to the keeping of a bank. Or sometimes you've been in a hospital and you've had to sign on the dotted line where you are entrusting your body to the care of a surgeon. I can't think of too many more serious kinds of entrustments that we give, committals that we give. And yet, I think each of us in our lives, in each of those situations, I think we've either personally experienced or we're aware whether someone else or in the news, we're aware that you can entrust your money to a bank and that bank not be trusted. You can entrust your children to the care of someone else and they not be trustworthy. These are very serious things. When you're suffering, can you trust God? Can you trust him with your very life, your soul? 
everything you are, can you trust God while you're suffering? And Peter says, essentially, yes, you can. You can know that during any sufferings you experience, you can know that you will never be disappointed because God is your faithful creator. This is so anchoring for us in our sufferings. We can trust God no matter how bad our lives are because he is faithful creator. So I have just two simple points. The first one is this. Throughout your suffering, you can entrust your life to God because he's your creator. He's your creator. Peter understood that this world is created by the word of God. He says it in 2 Peter 3, 5. It was his conviction that God created everything out of nothing with his will expressed in his voice. God called everything into existence. Suffering can be so disorienting. In suffering, you can question whether God is good. You can question what you've done. You can question whether God is there. It's fundamentally disorienting. And Peter is so wise to point us to God, our creator, to address those disorientations, those doubts that we have. Go back to creation. And I would just say, this is just a little aside, okay? Despite popular opinion, the more we learn about science, the more we learn that things must be designed. You will not, you will not get that if you read the Smithsonian or National Geographic. They'll try to do whatever they can to cover it. But the more we learn the more there are sirens going off right now saying current evolutionary theory cannot stand up to scrutiny. The more we learn, the more we say we are made. Let me just give five examples of this. I'm not a scientist. I'm not speaking as a scientist. I read in this. But if you're struggling right now with suffering, look at creation. Do you realize it's irreducibly complex? Creation is full of complex systems. One scientist coined this term, irreducible complexity, to describe systems that when you boil them down to their most basic parts, they can't function without multiple parts functioning all at the same time. When you boil them down to their essence, you need multiple, a complex of parts for them to work. One engineer points out how the human knee joint could never evolve in a million or a billion years because it requires 16 parts to be functioning simultaneously in order for that one knee to work. The fact of irreducible complexity shouts design. Secondly, interdependent systems. Going a step farther, not only do we have irreducibly complex systems all throughout nature, but we have interdependence between complex systems. For example, the female reproductive system is irreducibly complex, more complex than a knee joint. But it requires another complementary irreducibly complex system in order to work, namely the male reproductive system. And yet those reproductive systems in male and female cannot function unless you have 
the reproductive system also coordinating with the skeletal system that needs to be pretty much intact, and the nervous system that needs to be pretty well functioning, and the digestive system. All of these things need to be working intact, and we haven't even talked about the circulatory system. You have complex systems, and you have complex systems that are interdependent on each other. Going a step farther, when you look at creation, it is full of invisible information, information that our eyes can't see. The more we learn about this, the more astounding it is. Teams of scientists in the most prestigious universities are still trying to track the human genome and understand what its different parts do. Do you realize that in the cell of, of your body, in every cell of your body, there is DNA information. It's the blueprint for you. It's the information, the instruction manual for you. And when you try to put that DNA into a book, scientists tell us it's about 5,000 pages. 5,000 pages of information that is the instruction manual for your body in every cell. And, incidentally, if you understand that adults generally have at least 40 trillion cells in their body, it means that you are carrying around more information than is in all of Google storage banks. Information. That does not evolve. That is designed. It shouts design. The fourth facet that you really can't escape is instinctive justice, an instinctive sense of justice. As humans, we're not just machines, but we are people with moral compasses. From the time we're little, we care about right and wrong. Even infants demonstrate a sense of justice, a sense of right and wrong when a toy is taken. Or maybe even more, when they want to take a toy that they don't even want to play with. What's going on there? We have an inner sense of right and wrong. We have an inner sense of whether we're doing right or wrong. And we all live with a sense that what we've always done is not always what we believe we should have done. Where does that come from? Hmm. Screams, design. We're not just machines. We're, we're designed people by a person. And lastly, I think one more fundamental topic is just this. How do you explain the beginning? I think we all know that nature didn't just happen. It can't. There's a simple, simple philosophical argument called the Kalam argument that simply goes, and all of us know it instinctively, whatever begins to exist has a cause. We know that. We know, despite the signs that you might read at the Science Center at the museums, that the primordial elements, they didn't just exist for eternity. There wasn't just a pool of them always there. And they didn't just happen to somehow explode. If they were going for all eternity, there must have been some kind of cause to affect something to happen. All of us know, instinctively, that whatever begins to exist has a cause. We know instinctively that this universe had a beginning, a powerful beginning 
that can't be explained by an uncaused nothing. Some things don't come out of nothing. We all know this instinctively. And I work through these to say, when you are suffering, you've got to come back to square one. You've got to come back to reality. You need to remember that you're created, that you live in a created world, and that you have a creator. And this will anchor you in the disorientation of suffering, in the doubts that often accompany your suffering. It will anchor you to remember that God made you, and it's also helpful to just reason. If God made me and he made this world, he can speak. He can speak in a way that I can understand. And the Bible claims to be that spoken communication of God, that revealed word of God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I need to say at this point, before you can entrust your soul to your faithful creator in suffering, you've got to be reconciled to your faithful creator. Before you can run to him as your father, he must become your father through faith in the gospel. You must realize that there is coming a a time when you're going to give an account to your creator for the purpose for which he made you. He made you for him, to reflect him, to know him, to portray what he's like in creation and to other people. And you're going to give an account whether you lived for the purpose you exist. And if you're like me, and I can assure you, you are because of what the Bible says, you can't give an account to your creator on your own and hope to stand. You have to understand the good news of the gospel that God the Father gave God the Son to live in your place and die in your place and then to rise again and ascend to heaven and promise to return to fix everything that's broken in this creation. And we must trust him, entrust our lives to him, turn from being our own authority and submit ourselves to Jesus, God's chosen king for this planet who is crucified for us, who rose again and will return to reign. That's the gospel message. If you have never turned from being your own authority and submitted to Jesus, I call you to do it now. You must be reconciled to your creator before you can entrust your life to him. Second point that I want to work through is simply this. Because your creator is faithful, you can entrust your life to God. Throughout your suffering, you can entrust your life to God because your creator is faithful. When Peter emphasizes that God is our creator, he's not merely pointing us to the past, saying, yeah, a long time ago God made everything and you need to believe it. He is doing that, but he's doing a lot more. He's also expressing the the truth that God, our creator, is sovereign. He's currently sovereign over everything that's happening in creation, and the creator is driving creation toward its intended end. The creator created, the creator is sovereign over creation, the creator is taking his creation to where he wants it to go. He's creator. He has that kind of power and authority. That's Peter's thinking when he drives sufferers to their creator. He's reminding us, in a word, that our creator is faithful today. 
He didn't just let his hands off the wheel and let his creation go. He's a faithful creator. He's faithful in his sovereignty. He's got a design, a goal in mind for creation. He's a faithful creator. He's going to bring it to that intended end. That's Peter's emphasis. And this emphasis is often made throughout Scripture. I think it's nowhere more prominent than in Job, the connection between God, our faithful creator, and suffering. You might remember that God had led Job into horrific suffering, horrific loss. The suffering made absolutely no sense to Job. And at the high point, the climactic point of Job's struggle, God reveals himself as the creator. And he basically says, I manage the weather, even the bad weather. I manage the stars, even the wild constellations. He says, I manage even the animals that you can't touch. I manage the most wild and violent and inexplicable things in creation. And when Job remembers that his creator is faithful in his rule of creation, Job stops accusing God of wronging him. He humbly commits his life to his faithful creator saying, I put my hand over my mouth and I'm going to trust you with my life. That's a powerful example of how you rightly use creation in your suffering. God help us. In my final word of counsel, I just want to issue it like I often do on baptism Sundays to those who've just been baptized. So I look at Laura, and I look at Matt and Shirley, who's going to be baptized in just a few hours. And I say, baptisms are awesome days. Today has been a highlight of my life. I'm so thankful for what God has done in you and your, your willingness to follow him courageously and testify of it. It's been thrilling for us. But as you've experienced to some degree already, and you will experience more in days ahead. It's not all thrills right now in following Jesus. In following Jesus, there are insults. There are trials. There are sufferings. There are slanders. There are tensions for following Jesus. And you must remember that following Jesus isn't just a bed of roses. People today have heard your testimonies and we're cheering. It's thrilling. But there are going to come days in the future when you wonder if all of this is even real. Was I just saying words? Is there really a God out there? Why would he let me suffer like I'm suffering right now? And as you face those kinds of trials, those tests and days ahead, day by day, day by day, you're going to have to keep on entrusting yourselves to your faithful creator. You're going to have to keep on committing your life and your trials to him. You're going to have to go back to square one And you're going to have to say, I might not know anything else in the world, but I know that I'm made 
if I have a maker, he can be doing things. He can be doing trillions of things that I'm unaware of. And I can trust him with my life. And I'm going to trust you, God, even though I might not know anything else about what you're doing or why you're doing it. I can day by day trust you with my life. And I encourage the three of you on this day to, to really plant that footer in your life. No matter how hard things get, day by day, I'm going to keep entrusting my life to my faithful creator. Let's pray. Lord, you are a faithful creator in what you've made, in how you sustain it, and in where you're leading it. And I pray that all of us would live with this solid conviction, especially in our sufferings. In Jesus' name, amen.